We're in Acts 27, and this is a extension uh, towards the end of this um, ship voyage that Paul has been on. And I was thinking about this as I was driving in this morning, you know, talking about the promises of God and how encouraging all this is and what God did for him. And then maybe as a pastor, I shouldn't say this, but not everybody is saved from the ship. There are other Christians who drown. There are some Christians who get cancer, and they looked to God, and God didn't seemingly answer their prayer. So what do you do with that? If I say God keeps his promise, and then other Christians experience these travails, does that mean that God did not answer? Uh, There's a passage in Philippians It says it this way. This might actually cause further problems for us. (laughs) But it said, And my God will supply every need of yours. Huh? It doesn't stop there. It says, According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So there's this, you might call it a qualifier that, yes, needs are met, but it's gone through this filter of Jesus Christ, of what enhances, grows our relationship with Jesus Christ. And some of that means that for some it's a certain kind of hardship, travail. Some people may be saved from certain things, they need that. Others are not saved from certain things, and they go through it. And God is in all of that and is still faithful to keep his promise. I find that a little encouraging because I think that we get ourselves tied up in knots asking God to do certain things for us and they don't come about. And so we think God's not listening. God is deaf to what I'm going through. I think this passage in Philippians is helpful. So as I talk about God keeping his promise... I want you to know that I'm aware that there are things in your life that you've asked God for and he hasn't answered. Or at least answered in the affirmative. But he is still keeping his promise and meeting our needs according to our riches in Jesus Christ. I don't get everything I ask for. And neither do you. And as a child, a child expects everything they ask for. And they cry and whine when they don't get it. And God wants us to mature and realize that not everything we ask is necessarily for our own good, and he understands that. Acts 27, verses 33 through 44, it's called the anchor of my soul. And it'd be hard to, for some of us to appreciate what appears as an innocuous moment here at the end of Acts 27. It's like, okay, Paul is having a meal with some guys on a ship, (laughs) Uh, What's so big about that? Well, context is everything. Paul was traveling on a long trip in the Mediterranean Sea in order to make an an official appeal to Caesar after he's been wrongly accused. He was arrested in Jerusalem for defiling the temple. It was a lie, but Jews, you know, had this ginned up uh, charge. Uh, They tried to kill him, and after meeting with some officials, He goes to Caesarea, again, 
They try to have this basically a, an assassination group come and that plan is thwarted and he sees several different people. Finally, Caesar is appealed to. He has to get on this ship from Caesarea and go on a long journey through a storm. And they were sure that they were not going to make it. They were sure they were all going to drown. And yet, Paul had this one thing in his mind. God promised him that he would go to Rome. So Paul knew that they would make it. And not only him, but the other people that were with him, 276 people with him on this ship. So that was the one thing that stood out in the midst of all this, that God had made a promise. And that's what calmed Paul down. But it reminds me that there are some promises that are made to us that seem unlikely in the moment. I know that no violent storm can negate the powerful hand of God. But sometimes when we fail, I mean like really fail in a huge fashion, it seems impossible that God would forgive us. I don't know how many times I've heard this. God can't forgive me of doing this or this. And the fact is, in some cases, Christian family members, Christian church members have been known to put up a wall when a member fails big time. You know what I'm talking about. But doing so does not reflect the heart of God. Does not reflect the promise of God that says this. Listen to this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we feel ashamed or we have a a mountain of guilt because of sin, God promises for his children forgiveness. Maybe some others feel beaten down. They've made bad choices or there's opposition from others and you forget that maybe God has said that he's going to be unconditionally loving to his children from convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. It's hard at times to know that, right? Remember talking to one man who was repeatedly beaten by his father when he was growing up. I'm not talking spanking, I'm talking you know, beating the living daylights out of you. And it was hard for him to understand what love meant. But as we met in this group and the, God's unconditional love was finally embraced, you could see this, this cloud that was lifted. Some of you are in that place. God really loved me. Look at all that I've been through. And yet, That's what he says. That's his promise. Others maybe feel they can't handle anything any longer. Uh, They can't muster up the strength to face a problem or, or a temptation. But here's God's promise. But he said to me, grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
His power is in me. Wow. Met with a man this week, spoke of a life of crime, drugs, jail. But somehow, some way, God delivered him from all of that. Guess what he's doing now? Pastoring. Yeah. God's power is made perfect in weakness. That's our God. God promises a lot of other things, spiritual rest, companionship in the Holy Spirit, wisdom, guidance. The point is, God does not leave his children during hardship. I think sometimes there's the, there's the truth of who God is, and then there's what we believe about God, and sometimes those are two different things, right? I mean, there's unnecessary stress of believing something not true about God, or maybe even not true about how others feel about us. You ever think, you know, so-and-so, you know, doesn't like me, or, or maybe you even have a bad first impression of somebody only to change that later? We all go through that. I remember one situation where a spouse told me, and there was another person there in the room, uh, about her ex-husband. She said that he was incredibly unfair and, and these are her words, abusive in a letter that was written to her. I go, really? And I, I said, you know, do, do you have the letter? She happened to have the letter with her in her purse. Pulled the letter out. I read it. Along with the other person I was with. And we look at each other, it's like, boy, I not only don't see abuse, this seems even-handed and fair-minded. But her perspective did not accurately represent the message of the letter. Now, granted, there's probably all kinds of things in her past and in the relationship that clouded it, but at least the letter itself wasn't abusive. But she couldn't hear it. Couldn't hear it. I mean, think of believing something about God that is not true, but you're, you're convinced in your head and heart that it's true, that God doesn't love me. God's not in control. And none of that is true. How does that impact our ability to respond in a tough time? So, Understanding who God is and what he actually says and what his promises are, are are critical to us. Impacts our relationship with him and our ability to respond to hardship. So when calamity comes, what we think of God becomes critical to our response. We witness in our story today a man who was able to have calmness in the midst of calamity. This is what it says. Acts 27, verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves 
we were in all 276 persons in the ship. So remember, Luke is writing this. Dr. Luke is with them on the ship. There's much that could be said. I've already made the point before that it's cool that Luke went with him as a prisoner and, and stood with him in this. But Luke is the one writing about this. So daylight was not far off, and Paul reminds the sailors and passengers that they have not eaten in two weeks. And if they're going to survive this ordeal, you're going to need to get some strength. And so bread is gathered. Paul gives thanks. I like that scene because we can be pretty sure that just about everybody on that boat were unbelievers. And here's Paul giving thanks. Think of that the next time you're at a restaurant and you feel embarrassed to pray. And here's Paul on this whole ship. Paul reminds them that God is the, response, is the one responsible for the fact that they're still alive. And he's promised to save them. Not a hair of their head would be lost. And what happens as a result? Well, they eat, and they were encouraged. They eat, and they were encouraged. There's something for me by this simplicity of this act, and Paul leading him in this that I find enlightening. That there was love in the midst of this storm. That there was thankfulness in the midst of this storm as Paul led them. I think we can forget in our passion to communicate the gospel that some doors only open through acts of kindness when we meet basic needs. And I know that there are keen technological strategies to reach millions of people. I'm not making light of some of these things, but sometimes it just takes a simple prayer, the simplicity of a kind act, and then God moves. It wasn't because of Paul's superhuman willpower, but he chose to thank God and believe him. Now, if I were to interview each of you, I would be willing to guess that a majority of you do not feel like you can get in front of people and testify about what God has done in your life. And I'm not asking you to. But let me tell you what I think God will ask you to do. That to the people in front of you, you're kind. And you meet a need. And that God uses that in their life, somehow, some way, to encourage them, right? And that can give testimony to Christ in you. Verse 38. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. So after eating, they took the remaining wheat and they threw it overboard to make the ship lighter, to be able to run uh, the ship into the sand uh, in order to keep the ship still. And remember, this is a grain ship. 
So their primary source of income and the reason for this travel was to deliver this wheat. So they waited to the last possible moment and knew that had to go overboard too. In fact, they came upon a place that they did not recognize. In fact, the, the description matches the location that today is named, guess what? St. Paul's Bay <laughs> in this region. It says the anchors were cut off and let go into the sea. And then we read about ancient ships that had steering oars, one on each side, sticking out the back. In some language, the steering oars were translated as rudders, which is exactly what they were used for. And in a storm, they would be lifted out of the water and tied onto the side of the ship. But to guide the ship into this beaching, they had to be untied and let back down into the water. And the next step was to hoist the foresail, uh, which was a small sail in the, in the bow or front of the ship. And that was primarily used for steering, for guiding it. And the bow stuck fast and remained intact, but the stern, the back of the ship, was pounded to pieces by the surf. So the situation was dire. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept him from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So the Roman soldiers who were assisting Julius, who was their leader, were wanting to kill all the prisoners, including Paul. But Julius had this affection for the Apostle Paul, respect. Now remember, the reason for that is that if you lost a prisoner as a Roman soldier, what would happen? You would lose your life. So if one got away, if one escaped, you would lose your, your life, not your wife, but your life <laughs> as a Roman soldier. Okay? So it was too risky for them to let the prisoners go into the water and make a run for it. But again, Julius didn't want to see Paul experience such a fate. And what the soldiers failed to realize is that because of Paul, God was delivering this crew safely. So in a very real sense, Paul had this saving presence. The whole ship was being saved because of Paul. So you got these people who should have been grateful for Paul, but they had murder on their mind. I got to thinking about that. Remember that the next time you serve and seek to help people. God will reward you, but others may not be so appreciative. You know, and I think we put ourselves at a disadvantage to expect everyone to appreciate our sacrifices. You are in a dream world. Because that just doesn't happen. Now hopefully we can do a good job of that, and we can, you know, share our thanks and, and appreciate people and encourage them, but it doesn't always happen. And to expect it is to put yourself, I think, in a compromising position. With the dinging gong, um, say that 10 times, the dingy gone, there was 
but one way that these voyagers could find some safety. They had to swim to shore. And those who couldn't swim were just grabbing pieces of the boat to float to land. So what can we learn from this? Well, here's one thing. That God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise. What was the promise? Well, God promised Paul that he would save this whole ship. And he did. Now, Satan tried to prevent it. Tried to kill Paul. Tried to do a lot of other things. But God's word prevailed. 1 Kings 8 says this. There has not failed one word of his good promise. God spared hundreds of people because of one man. God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah for ten righteous people. And he didn't send his wrath until Lot and his family had safely escaped. And God has seen elsewhere to hold back judgment because of the presence of his faithful servants. And so we could say this, that God's promise is still intact when they tried to kill Paul, when Paul was falsely accused, when the storm came and people were frightened for their lives, that did not impact the promise that God made to Paul. When you seem unable to go on, God's promise is still intact, is still in place. My last year in undergraduate school, I was in a men's choir of about 40 other men. Thankfully, with me in it, we sang at mostly deaf audiences, so they couldn't hear me sing. (laughs) So there was a member that, uh, a fellow student that was there in our midst and told us a story. And he had helped us out with a project. He just said, hey, I'm going to have to leave school. You know, I felt like God brought me here to the Moody Bible Institute, but I have to leave because I have a bill of $556 I just can't pay. And so, you know, we, uh, we said, well, listen, we could take up a collection. I mean, 40 college students, we don't have any money, but, you know, it might be a, something that we could give. So we had a hat. Somebody had a hat on. We, and we just passed it around to the 40 of us. And then I... I went away with one other guy to count the money and then brought it back and the guy was still there to the penny. $556. Exactly what he needed. Never forget it. There's not a failed word of his good promise. The influence of Christians, here's another lesson we learned can influence a community. The influence that you have amongst your friends, your family, and this community is much greater than you think. We see in this story one man who fed a crew, brought peace to a frightened people. What did he do? He ate. He prayed. He told of God's promise. We see of a Roman leader who went to bat for Paul because he witnessed something different in Paul than all the other criminals, I'm sure, that he had to deal with. And the community 
of boat passengers was influenced by the Apostle Paul. Besides being saved from death, they were treated kindly and had a basic human need met. It forces me to ask this question. Will Springfield miss Christ Community Church if there was a day that we were gone? Would there be some needs that would cease to be met? Would there be people that would quit having an advocate? You know, when I look upon this society, I look at our community, I see an anxious people, an anxious society. Fear is gripping people now more than I ever remember it. I see people worried about the future. And we certainly have hope. And the most important thing we can share is, is the gospel. And helping people's physical needs cannot be equated with the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But that doesn't mean that our love stops with saving their soul. That doesn't mean that our concern doesn't expand beyond the gospel. I think of the words of Jeremiah 29.7. Listen to this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of Springfield and the community that I have sent you to and pray to the Lord for its citizens and its welfare. For when you help your city, you help yourself. That includes deliverance from injustice, poverty, rescue from social and political structures impeding the genuine welfare of citizens and physical and emotional healing. We are to contribute to human flourishing. We work against that which has brought human destruction, loss of human worth. And when we work with the poor, we want to see families in a community in a better position to live fruitful lives. And when we work with race issues, it's not out of motivation with a certain political bent, but because God has asked his people to pray for and work for the welfare of everyone. And when we improve the plight of one people, we contribute to the welfare of a whole community. Jesus called it loving your neighbor. You know, I don't wear a wristband of what Jesus would do, but I do care deeply about living a life that Jesus would live. So I want to hear the hurts of the poor, those crushed under a weight of doing things, the way that sometimes they're done in our society that can cause us not to hear what's going on in the lives of people that maybe are different than me or don't have the same experiences that I've had. When I was a student in Chicago, I worked in the Pacific Garden Mission weekly. I worked with families and children. I realized that this was a world that I knew little or nothing about. 
I mean, I grew up in a, in a two-parent family, loving parents, never missed a meal, played a little league, went to college. And there in front of me in Chicago at the Pacific Garden Mission were people who rarely had two parents in their lives, who many did not know where their next meal would come from, which is why they were there at the Pacific Garden Mission. And their prospects of getting an education beyond you know, high school, if they even finished, that was slim. Now, I certainly don't claim to have all the answers. But I think for people like that, I want to be able to just to at least acknowledge them, hear them. And then I hope that I can do something. But turning my head and blaming them just doesn't seem to be a good option. You know, I don't blame the woman who's abused or the hungry person or the, or the victim of racial strife. It's not that they're not responsible. They are. But it's my first obligation to listen, to love, to learn from hurting people. You know, Paul could have said this. He said, you know what? It's the Roman leaders and political system that has created your plight by building crummy ships. I didn't make this mess, and I'm not helping you. And if you listen to the tone of many people, it's similar to something like that. But instead, he simply met their need. That may be all I know to do for now, to meet somebody's need. We can figure out tomorrow when we get there. But love compels us. Paul ministered in the storm. He was confident of God's presence, his power, his promises. It's interesting to me that at least on this ship, we don't, we don't find him preaching a sermon. We don't hear him desperately yelling at God, you know, asking him for a life raft. We don't see that. I like the words of G. Campbell Morgan. He said, here was a man on two ships one after the other, in storms, in stress, in danger, with howling winds and creaking timbers and rending ropes and buffeting waves. Why was he quiet? Because the Lord was with him, and he knew it. And that's the essence of faith. Hebrews tells us that. That when you get down to the bottom of it, faith in times of hardship is that God is here. And he rewards those who are faithful. Let's pray.